Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, April 24th, the What's in That School Lunch edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mother of Harry 5, Sam 3, and Wally 1. And I'm Dan Kois. I'm also an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who turns nine next week, and Harper, who remains six, much to her chagrin. Hey, Dan. Hey, Allison. On today's show, we'll talk to Chicago Public Radio reporter Monica Eng about the state of the school lunch. And Dan and I will discuss only children, not being one, but having one, and why there's a stigma attached to being the parent of an only child. Also, parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a great listener call. But before we get to all that, a quick reminder to subscribe either to the Slate Daily Podcast feed or to the Mom and Dad are Fighting feed in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And tell your family and friends about us. This is not just a throwaway line. Really do. We want more subscribers, so get them to subscribe too. Dan has another announcement. Oh, yeah. So we, um, sometime in the near future, are going to do a show uh, in which we answer a lot of questions uh, called in over our phone line. And uh, listeners have been very good and very with calling in with really interesting questions. The number is 424-255-RUDE. And parents have sent in a lot of questions. But we want, for this upcoming show, to have kids call in about their parenting questions. So if your kid has a question about how you parent or how things work in your family or how other families work or other parents work, please encourage them to give us a call at 424-255-RUDE and ask our question to ask their question to the voicemail and we'll do our best to answer it uh, on a future show. Um, kids can just leave a first name only, um, their town and their age, and we'll do our best to answer those tough parenting questions that kids ask. For example, if Lyra called the line and asked, her parenting question would be, why do parents always pack the same snack every day? That's what it would be. That's a good one. The the answer is because we buy things in boxes of six, not (laughs) boxes of one. My kids would just call in and ask if they can watch more TV. (laughs) I think the phrase would be, can we watch two shows? (laughs) (laughs) That would be easy. That would be easy. The answer is no. (laughs) 
Uh, wrong. In my house, the answer is yes. Okay, <laughs> on to triumphs and fails. Dan, take it away. Yeah, I have a really super terrible fail. Uh, this happened yesterday morning. Um, we were just hanging around in the kitchen getting ready for school after spring break. And I was cleaning something, I forget what. And um, Harper just out of nowhere said, uh, Oh, daddy, you clean some things, but mommy cleans most things. And the fail is that she is right. Uh, <laughs> I clean some things, but mommy cleans most things. And it is bad enough that my kid has noticed. Uh, and so um, that sucks on a number of levels. Um, and Alia, it was interesting, actually. Alia, like, immediately, like, made the point, uh, the very nice point, that daddy does lots of other things for the family, like paying the bills or going to the grocery store and things like that. Uh, but that does not change the fact that she cleans more things and I should clean more things. That was my fail. Uh, I think it's pretty funny how gender plays into that because my kids have noticed that I don't cook. But I don't I don't have guilt about that or feel weird that they've noticed that. I have like some kind of pride that they notice that dad cooks more than I do. <laughs> but I see how the other, you know, whatever. Yeah. We should both be doing, we should all be pulling our weight. And I, but I see how it could be, you know. How it's more no, complicated it, I think it makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes a difference when it's the thing that you don't want your kids thinking is always associated with one, right? With the other gender, right? right? Like it makes a difference to me that my kids don't think that cleaning is just something that moms do, right? All right, so you know how to remedy that. Yep, All hire yeah, a cleaning know. lady. <laughs> okay, well, I have a triumph. Um, as listeners of the show probably know, I'm Jewish. My husband's not. I've talked about this at length because it, it, it. It's something in our marriage that, you know, we that we we deal with and in, in terms of how to raise our kids. And we raise them Jewish. And for every holiday comes along and it's kind of fraught because I make it fraught. No one else makes it fraught. It's me. I feel all this pressure to uh, construct the holiday in a way that will make everybody comfortable, that will reflect our ideals about the world um, and the fact that we don't believe in God, which becomes very complicated when you're trying to figure out how to... Um, have traditions in your house that are all based on religion that is based around God. So it came Passover time this year. My parents came to town, and I, as normal as I normally do before a holiday, I'm like kind of freaking out about how to how to handle it. And I'm googling, you know, Passover without God um, to look for <laughs> to look for not a lot not a lot of hits on that. Um, to look for readings to have it our Seder. In past years, I've made my own Haggadah to try to tailor it exactly to what I think our family needs. Finally, around, I don't know, 4 o'clock on the day of the first Seder, I realized this is crazy. Like, why am I doing this? I don't understand. Why am I doing this? Like, I didn't grow up with a with a Seder comp- tailored to what my parents really believed. <laughs> like, we just did the traditions, and I grew up and figured it out. So we had, like, a very traditional stress-free Seder. We, like, did the regular readings, and then we took some breaks and sort of talked them through a bit. My kids were pretty into it, actually, especially Harry, I think, because he wanted to show off his reading, so he really liked to take part. And it was just really fun, and I regret, you know, previous (laughs) holidays, and I hope that I can learn from this. So it was a triumph. That's an excellent triumph. Passover triumph, triumph. yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go do a Boolean Google search for Christmas minus Christ. And see what I get. Well, there's plenty of that. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. I can't believe you're taking the you're taking the God out of your Seder. It's the war on Passover. <laughs> okay, on to our first topic. 
A decade ago, people who care about food and nutrition and kids started paying attention to that much-derided meal service, the school lunch. School lunch reformers began lobbying Congress and school districts for healthier offerings, real as opposed to processed foods. But when WBEZ reporter-producer Monica Ang recently started looking into the school lunch program at Chicago Public Schools, she found that not much has changed. The top three entrees in Chicago schools are currently processed chicken patties, processed chicken nuggets, and processed chicken crumbles over nachos. So we asked Monica, who is actually an old friend and colleague of mine from our Chicago Tribune days, to come talk to us about the state of the school lunch. Hey, Monica. Hey, Allison and Dan. How are you guys doing? We are good. Thank you for coming on. So first, tell us what you found when you looked at what's being served in the Chicago public schools. Well, uh, five years ago at the Tribune, I started investigating school food, and I found it was nachos and fries every day. And so I wanted to do an update five years later. All right, so has it improved? Because I've gotten tons of press releases saying, everything's so great, let's move, mission accomplished. And I found, you know, as you said, that the top five entrees are still this, this highly processed food that everybody is saying we need to move away from. And and it just strikes me as the kind of thing where they want to put out a good uh, good face forward and a good facade, but when the rubber hits the road, what are the kids eating? It's the same, you know, dozens and dozens of ingredient processed chicken food-ish things. Why has it been so difficult to get healthy food into the schools? Well, um, there are a lot of reasons why. Uh, one, and possibly one of the toughest is participation equals reimbursement, meaning the more the kids take the food, the more money the district gets. So there's a really strong incentive to present things that kids will be like, sure, I'll eat that or I'll take that. Actually, they don't have to eat it. They can throw it in the garbage. As long as they take it, the district gets the money. The other thing is you've got, you know, hugely powerful companies that make these things that can lobby the caterer in this case, excuse me, the caterer, in this case, Aramark in Chicago, to to take the stuff and say, you know, we'll give you these rebates that they actually don't have to pass on to the district. So, you know, Tyson or whoever makes it, they wouldn't tell me who made the chicken stuff, um, can say, hey, you know, I don't want to lose this account, so, you know, please keep taking my stuff. I think until you take all those big financial incentives like rebates and um, and like these very powerful companies who already have relationships with these caterers out of the equation, things are going to change really slowly. So I feel like everything I read about school lunches is about like Alice Waters and Jamie Oliver magically showing up in schools <laughs> and everyone growing their own like aquaculture or whatever. And 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 kids eating much more healthy and exploring the relationship between food and their community. But my my guess is that that's the case in like one percent of schools. Is that right? I mean, is it is everyone actually just eating crap, except for Jamie Oliver's school? Well, you know that's yeah, that's a really good point because again, if you if you read some of the feel good articles that people like to plant or place, if you read a lot of the press releases coming out of the school districts, you're going to think, oh wow, they're all eating broccoli and local carrots. Well, that's actually not the case. I talked to Ann Cooper, who was the first chef in the Edible Schoolyard project that. Alice Waters started, and she has since moved on to Boulder, and she's doing wonderful things. She's totally committed. She is not in bed with any of these companies, and she really doesn't care who she pisses off. Well, I mean, she's gotten a little better that she really kind of offended people at first. And she she's out there, you know, getting the organic milk, getting the bone-in chicken, saying, I don't want your processed stuff. But those are few and far between. I mean, it's just easier on so many levels to keep 
putting out the processed stuff. The kids will take it. You get these big rebates. You don't have to hire much labor. That's another big issue. You know, in the last several decades, they've been moving the lunch programs from one that was highly dependent on labor, people who actually knew how to cook, to one where you could hire minimum wage workers who just knew how to throw, throw things into a reheating oven. And as the anti-movement, uh, sorry, as the anti-union movement progressed, and obviously we've got some big pension issues, having workers who got paid a decent wage and who needed to be skilled became less and less attractive. So this, you know, this, this convenient processed food solved a lot of problems, but nobody thought about what the problems would be that they'd bring in terms of our health. I'm curious, since we are a parenting podcast, two, two sort of related questions. One, are there things that you think that parents can do? And then two, is part of the problem that there is a class divide in the cafeteria? I, I, you know, I remember this from when I was growing up, and I assume it's still the same, although I could be wrong, um, that children of wealthier parents bring food from home, packed from home, and the less privileged kids are the ones that eat the school lunch. It's a really good point. Um, well, to the first question, what can parents do? You can go to the board meetings. You can join the, uh, the local school councils. You can complain like crazy, but it really has to hit a critical mass. In Chicago, we have one school food contract, and every time parents say, well, couldn't we just raise tons of funds and just change the, the food at our school? They say, no, it's one contract for the whole district. Charter schools are um, exempted, but otherwise it's one contract for the whole district. We had some of Chicago's most powerful chefs who also happened to be parents who wanted to just do a pilot program in one school. And they said, no. I mean, they said, we'll do all the fundraising. We know how to fundraise. Um, to the other point, yeah, the class divide is a huge thing. Um, Mayor Daley in Chicago really wanted to keep his tax base. And so he created all these selective schools. You know, he had, he created some really good and attractive schools that would keep those who maybe would have thought about going to the suburbs. But at the same time, he got some really mousy moms and dads who stayed in the district who said, you know what, we're eating organic food at home. You really think I'm going to let my kid eat this? So in a lot of schools, like I asked my daughter what percentage of kids at her school, which is, you know, one of the, you know, exceptional um, minority, minorities are a minority there, um, schools. She said only about 10% of the kids actually take school lunch at her school. And, you know, if they want to get participation up, they're going to have to up their game on the food. But when you have a district with lots and lots of different uh, uh, socioeconomic groups or, you know, two two pretty far ends of the spectrum on the socioeconomic groups, you're going to have different demands on the food. Also, you know, there's the ethnic thing. You know, some some ethnic groups, you have some all Chinese districts, some largely Latino districts, some largely African-American districts. Sometimes there are different uh, food preferences there. So it, it's a lot to handle in one district. But certainly, you know, you're seeing that the, the higher income schools have really low participation. It's been really interesting to me to see as my kids have gotten older, just how little thought is given to lunch in general, like not not just the food, but to how much time the kids get to how it's organized, even to the point of when it is like there's currently an uproar going on uh, in, in on my block because the local middle school for a week uh, has moved lunch back from its ordinary time of 10.30 a.m. to 9.45 a.m. because they have what? to accommodate, like, something going on in the cafeteria. So, but it's like, it's like the only thing that schools even pay attention to less than, like, music and art is lunch. And so, at, like, the idea that 
lunch could become this magically healthy and organic thing seems totally antithetical to the fact that lunch is basically a thing that most school districts feel like they just have to get through as cheaply as possible. Yeah, I mean, someone actually parodied that uh, a local school council member in Chicago from, I believe, Rogers School parodied the whole lack of importance of lunch. He did sort of a modest proposal um, satire that was uh, written about in the Washington Post yesterday where he said, you know what, we could get more school time in if we just reduce lunch to three minutes. And it was, it was actually very funny. You should take a look. Uh, but yeah, you know, if it's not in Common Core, if it's not in, uh, if it's not part of the No Child Left Behind rules, it's going to get minimized, just like Jim, just like you know, our kids' health. If they're not saying, you know, you're going to be judged on how healthy your kids are, or how well they're eating, then that's going to be the thing that, that gets the least priority. All right. I just want to close by saying that when I used to work with Monica, she was an incredibly adventurous eater. I'm sure she still is. She always had really disgusting food in her <laughs> cubicle. I think Monica doesn't believe that food gets old. Am I correct with that, Monica? Uh, well, I've got some uh, some dirty old detritus on my desk right now that I'm looking at. That but, you'll you know. eat later today. So I'm just curious, in your weird food fantasy world, Monica, if you were your kid's lunch lady, what would you serve for lunch? I would be serving, well, rice and beans every day, but also, you know, why not chicken feet? Why not a, a delicious chicken broth made of chicken heads and chicken feet every day? That's very nourishing. Um, why not chicken feet, Monica? <laughs> why you know not? what? They're very sustainable. If they come from pastured chickens, they're going to have a lot of vitamin D in there. All right, Monica, thank you so much for coming on. It was really fun to talk to you. All right. Thanks, take care, Monica. Guys. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Okay, let's move on to our listener call. Each week, we take a call-in questioner from a listener, and we would love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE, what Dan is to his kids. Uh, And again, just a reminder that you should also have your children call in with their questions. Tell them that they can ask us anything. You will not punish them for whatever questions that they ask. Uh, (laughs) Same number. So call us with your questions. Get your kids to call us with their questions. Uh, But don't punish them. They'll call us back and tell us if you do. Right. So here is today's great question. It comes from Daniel Riley in Tarboro, North Carolina. Hi, guys. This is First Place Mom and Dad, our fighting podcast. I think you talk a lot about how to raise great individual children, but it strikes me that one of the other things we're trying to do with raising children and having families is improve and contribute to the overall society and the community in which we live. And to that end, I'd love to hear your thoughts on efforts to diversify schools. Um, schools are more segregated now than they were in 1980. Um, and I think one of the questions that a lot of young parents who are progressive uh, have is, um, should I be trying to get my kid into whatever the best school is for them individually uh, that's going to help them get into a great college? Or um, should I be prioritizing uh, the community that they are a part of and how to be um, myself as a parent a part of a more diverse group of parents trying to improve the immediate community back in. Um, I think it's a really interesting question. We'd love to hear you guys discuss this. That is a very interesting question. Um, and it's one that gets sort of at the heart of what I think is the biggest difference between Allison and I in terms of our parenting. I mean, the podcast is called Mom and Dad Are Fighting, but actually we, our dirty secret is that we agree on a lot of things. But this is the, as we've discussed before, this is the biggest difference. And it's the, and it's the thing about my parenting that I feel the most guilty about, which is that we 
our family essentially completely gave up this particular fight, even though it's something that is important to us theoretically. Practically, when the time came, we left New York and moved to the suburbs to an extremely undiverse school in which, like, we are the weirdest people in it and we're extremely not weird. So, you know, so I would love to hear, Allison, you talk about what what your school is like and how you stress these things to your kids and how and how you feel like it's going to go as your kids move into the world of of your local schools, because for us, we essentially like abrogated that responsibility completely. So, I mean, I can talk about how it will be for my kids, but also just like on a broader (laughs) to more broadly answer the question, I feel very strongly about this. In fact, I've written a uh, piece for Slate. And last year I wrote a piece, I think the headline was, if you send your kids to private school, you are a bad person. Uh, and it was, that was the headline. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, well, it, wasn't the deck something like, yes, you. <laughs> right. Yes, you, Dan Coyce. Oh, you don't send your kids to private school. But point the point being that if you have that theor- that particularly liberals who theoretically, uh, you know, feel like it's important to support the public school system and that diversity is important um, and that. Uh, socioeconomic diversity and racial diversity and 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 the whole idea behind public schools, which is that we're all in <laughs> uh, that if we if you believe in that, then you have to put your non money, put your kids where your mouth is. Uh, I feel very, very strongly that, you know, when it comes down to it, the only real way that the schools are going to get better, the public schools are going to get better is if people who can afford to do otherwise stick. They stick with their districts. They send their kids to to the schools. They, you know, are involved in the, the, the pa- parents who, you know, have the time uh, and resources to prioritize um, the, the their kids' education uh, are involved in their schools rather than abandoning <laughs> less privileged kids to the public school system. So I feel very strongly that in, in theory, and I uh, feel strongly about... <laughs> doing that in practice. Um, So, yeah, I send my kids to a local public school. It's a good local public school. It's a diverse local public school, but it's not like I'm not going to pretend like I send my kids to some, you know, terrible school um, because I'm so, you know, such a martyr. But I do think that it is incredibly important and I don't care about my kids having the best uh, when it comes to really anything. (laughs) But if we're talking about their education, they don't need it. They'll do fine, and there are different there are different definitions of the best, and something that's very important to me. And what I grew up it, with, which was a pretty terrible academically, pretty terrible school, but a very diverse um, public school experience, and I really want that for my kids. Is there any? Could you envision there being a scenario at any point in the future in which your public school? went downhill in quality or went downhill in safety or in which you could imagine ever not being at that school? Or do you feel you are in it thick and thin, barring like nuclear winter? I mean, it's 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 a diff it's it's different in New York than the way you're thinking of it, because we're in an elementary school now and then we're going to have to apply to middle schools that aren't that middle schools and high schools that it's not broken down by district. You apply to like, you know, wherever you that whole fucking nightmare in New York that we like led to escape. Right. Um, but I was just talking to someone recently whose who's, who's, uh, daughter tested really well and got into kind of like one of the elite <laughs> uh, public middle schools, and he went t- to visit, and the principal said uh, to all of the parents, congratulations, you are the elite of the elite. You know, you're the best of the best. 
and he said, fuck you. I'm not sending my daughter here. Like, he didn't want that for his daughter, actually. Did he actually. say fuck you to the principal? He said that to me. I mean, in oh. his, you know, in his brain, that's what he said. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think there actually are people who who don't want to um, sort of cordon their kids off. And um, and I respect that. I also really understand the, you know, the I'm not I'm not dismissing the motivations for wanting to send your kids to um, the best school that you can. But I think that it's it's a matter of, you know, making sacrifices for the greater good. And I don't always do that in my life. But in this one area, I think it's really, really important. I also also want to say we talked about schools a couple of weeks ago and um and a lot of people emailed in to say that I had said something, I did say this, um, kind of dismissive of schools in uh, less well-off districts talking about, like, that the teachers weren't as good there. And I should not have said that. It's, it's, it's not true. Teachers work incredibly hard across the board, and there are great teachers and bad teachers in every school. So thanks for writing in and correcting me, everyone. There's no bad teachers in my school, Allison. <laughs> there are only good teachers. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel, from Tarboro, North Carolina, for calling. It's a great question, one that could fill up 10 million podcasts, I'm sure. We'll be discussing various ramifications of this question of these issues for uh, episodes and episodes to come. So um, last episode, uh, I asked about adventures that I could take my kids on. We were talking about the adventure boating parents. Um, and uh, and a lot of listeners wrote in suggesting adventures. And a lot of them were really interesting. And I wanted to call out a few and thank a few listeners for writing. Um, because a lot of the adventures they suggested uh, that are both dangerous-seeming but uh, more or less basically safe uh, sound great. Um, Jill McElmurray. Listener Jill McElmurray suggested a canoe trip, a multi-day canoe trip, or even a single-day canoe trip. She recommended the Boundary Waters of Minnesota, but you could also do it in a civilized state like Wisconsin. Um, I think I may actually do this with my kids this summer um, uh, in central Wisconsin. There's a lot of great canoeing. Um, listener Matthew Levinson suggested an easy base camp hiking trip, just two or three days. You hike in like a mile or two. You hang out in a camping area with a tent. You take little day trips uh, during the day, and overnight you stay there. It feels like you're in the middle of nowhere, even if you're only just a few miles from your car. Um, he also suggested the excellent book Babes in the Woods for parents with babies or toddlers. Specifically, it's a great guide to navigating uh, the great outdoors with little, little, little kids. Kara uh, Murius suggested snowshoeing which I would never have thought of in a million billion years. Um, but she notes that it is really great for giving kids a chance to feel like they're in the middle of nowhere with only their brand new skills to guide them. Um, it's also a great exercise. The downside is that you are cold. Um, and then the last suggestion, uh, which is super interesting, but um, I think is somewhat pricey, um, is uh, Carolyn Roosevelt suggested the Windjammer boats in Maine, um, which uh, do allow kids over six on multi-day um, boat trips. Uh, it seems totally fascinating. It is not a thing I would do because I'm not going to pay that much money for the privilege of my children watching me vomit. But I do think that it would be fun for many people. But then my favorite email was from Scott in Montana who notes that it is all relative because his kids go hiking all the time and it's like, you know, no big deal. But they got totally freaked out on their adventurous trip to New York City recently. So that's just another kind of adventure depending on your context. So thank you everyone for writing in. 
All right, let's go on to our second segment today. Um, listener Elise Chismadia wrote in with a really great question, um, and I thought it was worth us talking about today. Uh, Elise is the mother of a seven-year-old boy. She says that she knew from the beginning, they both knew, she and her husband knew, that they were going to have one child, just one child. They were not going to have multiple kids. Um, but from the very beginning, she says she and her husband were judged for their choice, and they're constantly asked questions like, oh, how could you do that to him? Um, or, you know, sh- they hear that she's the child of an old, the parent of an only child and there's just like awkward silence. Um, and people ask her like, oh, well, was it infertility? Did you lose other pregnancies? Um, and she says, I've read books and articles on the topic, but no matter how many people say that only children grow into well-adjusted adults, there's still a stigma. And she asks us to talk about why people continue to analyze and judge only children, um, and their parents. It's a great question. So there are two things that I want to talk about here. Um, first of all, and Allison, you can address this too, I think based on reading that we've done, anyone who thinks that only children have it worse than kids with siblings is wrong. Like that is not true. Um, and Elise mentions this in her email, but it's worth reiterating that in hundreds of studies over decades, um, multiple researchers have determined that in basically every character, positive character trait you can imagine, only children score the same or better than children with siblings. Like there's just no difference. Like not having a sibling gives you many positive qualities just as having a sibling gives you many positive qualities. Um, and in many ways, having just one kid, like, makes a lot of sense. Like, it is not a bad idea. It is obviously better for a completely overpopulated Earth. Um, it is a lot less expensive. It currently costs, like, $286,000 to raise a kid to age 17. So if you just have one of them instead of two or, God forbid, Allison three, you are saving a lot of dough. Um, but so that is the first thing. All that's true. If anyone wants a really great primer, you should read Lauren Sandler's book, One and Only, which um, combines kind of a personal tale of her being an only child and her making the decision to have an only child um, with a ton of research, uh, both on the, you know, the prospects for an only child, which are, as Dan said, very good, um, and for how having an only child impacts a marriage, which also there's a lot of research about how that, um, how it you know, how it's good for a marriage. <laughs> it's not bad for a marriage uh, and for and for adult happiness. All that being said, I think Elise is right that there continues to be a stigma. And I'm curious, Dan, even though we can sit here and talk about the research, if you're if you reach into your heart of hearts and you're very, very honest with our podcast listeners and with me, when you meet someone who has only one child, what do you think? I think bless you, you probably made the right choice. I am extremely, it's interesting. So I'm not, I feel like I'm not judgmental at all towards parents of only children. I'm extremely embarrassingly judgmental towards parents of four or more children. I am always like, oh my God, you're crazy. Like very good friends of ours just had their fourth child last week. And, uh, and when she told us that she was pregnant, I laughed out loud. Uh, like in her face and I felt terrible about it afterwards, but I like can't believe when people do that. But I really don't, I feel like I don't have this feeling towards parents of only children. I feel like it's a totally normal, great choice for many families. Um, and, and the way that I parent when I only have one kid, for example, is so different and often appealing that though I love both my children, I totally get why 
the totally intense and fascinating bond that you can have with a kid when it's the only when he or she is the only kid in the house. So why what do about you, think you? That... in your heart of hearts? Do you think, oh, God, I can't imagine you only having one kid. Where's your spare? <laughs> um, yeah, if I'm being totally honest, yes, intellectually, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, there's nothing. There is nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it you, everyone should make their own life choices, have no kids, have one kids, have five kids. I don't judge people that have, you know, a ton of kids either. Um, but if I'm being really honest, yeah, I guess I think because it doesn't um, line up with the things that I <laughs> want in my life, that it seems strange to me, I guess. I don't think it's, I, I don't judge it as though it's like a, you know, poor moral decision. I don't think the kids are doomed, but I guess I don't get it. Um, and I definitely think that there is a, a real stigma attached to it. I mean, I feel, I feel bad for parents who have to deal with that, even though I'm saying they have to deal with it from someone like me. I don't really know how to reconcile that. I don't know why that these choices are judged. I don't know why I judge them. Well, um, I mean, it's, I mean, so the majority of humans in America uh, were not only children, right? It's between 20 and 25 percent of American families have one child right now. And that number is up from previous decades, which means the vast majority of people you see anywhere had a brother or a sister or more than one brother or sister. And many people have lovely memories of their own upbringings as siblings. And in general, I think universally across the board, people are really, really bad at understanding that other people's way of being is just as rewarding or legitimate as their own. I mean, that is true of almost anything that you can intellectually understand that, but you always you always sort of innately feel like the way that things are for you or were for you is the way that things are naturally supposed to be. And so, you know, it comes up in all in all areas of life, but it does seem particularly weird in this one. But but that's why I think. But I think it's worth noting that it is not your job as a parent to like worry about or judge or discuss anyone else's decision on how many kids to have. Like if someone tells you that they are having only one kid or if someone tells you, Dan Coyce, that they are having their fourth kid, like shut up and be happy for them. Yeah. It is your job to be on other parents' side and to occasionally disclose embarrassing personal failures so that they feel better about themselves. But it is not your job to judge them. That's it. That is your only job. So, so two things here. One is... That I think, you know, the the stereotypes around only children persist um, also within the families with only one child. I mean, I think that even though we know these things aren't true, the things that parents of only children worry about (laughs) are the same things that people potentially judge them for, which is like, will my kid end up being selfish um, because or spoiled because he gets so much attention? Um, will he not have, you know, interpersonal skills because he doesn't have to deal with a sibling? So I think it's interesting that, like, those things that, that study after study prove are nothing to be concerned about. And those things, which, like, a lot of... Um, you know, my or other parents of multiple of, of multiple kids' judgments are based on actually are things that concern the parents of only children, which I guess they shouldn't be concerned about those things either. Um, or sec- maybe their concern is one of the things that keeps those things from being problems. I mean, if you just as you and I are conscious of the things that we want our children to avoid because of the various things that are specific to their lives, whether it's their privilege or the fact that they have siblings or the fact that they're boys in your kid's case or girls in my kid's case. I mean, that just that is part of what parenting is, is looking out for the things that you don't want to adversely affect your kids and trying to remedy them in some way. I think that's a very good point. 
the other thing is that from Lauren Sandler's book, there were a c- couple of things that stood out to me as, you know, really being great, <laughs> great benefits to having only one child. I mean, the way she describes it is having one is all of the miracles and shampoo mohawks, but with leftover energy for sex and conversation. Oh, man. And that's a great line. And oh, yeah, man. I don't have leftover energy for sex and conversation. So yes, I can see how it would be really good for a marriage. And, and I can see, and I, and I, can see that prioritizing your marriage is a very important thing, both for your own happiness and ultimately for your for your kids. Also, yes. she talks some in the book about how we have become so um, we're like enclosed in these little bubbles of our own family um, because we're so busy and or because we think we're so busy and um, because we're, our parenting has become this. We're you busy, know, Allison. We're busy. Right. Knock and it be- off. And because parenting is this thing now, it's like a job that we do as opposed to just like having a bunch of kids and that having only one child, um, the same as having only no having no children, allows you to participate in the world around you instead of just doing what's best for your children or caring about your kids, you can be more involved in your wider community. I know that you do some volunteering, Dan, so maybe you're better at this than I am. But I I do think like that is something that is important to me um, that I have sort of sidelined, given up on right now, because I feel like all of my energy is poured into my job and my three kids. And I'm very sympathetic to that argument and, uh, and hope that I can find a way to to manage that with three kids, but I can see how having only one kid would really allow you to be a participant in the world, not in a, not in a selfish way, like still have my old life and go out with my friends, but in a in an uns, very unselfish way. I think it's a good point. I mean, the last point I would want to make also is I want to recommend a, a very fun piece um, in the New Yorker's books blog by Alexandra Schwartz, which is about only children in literature and children's liter- literature in particular. It talks a lot about um, Roald Dahl's heroes and heroines, almost all of whom are only children. Um, uh, but it also notes as sort of the prototype greatest only child in um, children's literature, uh, Lyra Balakwa from uh, His Dark Materials, the Philip Pullman trilogy, who points to one another advantage that only children often have, which is that they are – as you say, they are often more engaged with the world because the very fact of being an only child and not having a sibling to play with means that you get out into the world to make your own adventure potentially a lot more than children with siblings do. Because to find your fun, you have to go outside of the house. In Lyra in Lyra from the book's case, it's, uh, it's a little bit extreme in that she has quite a greater adventure than you might expect your kids to have. But she, as an only child... Is forever in that book a character who makes her own fun and and makes her own adventure and is willing to befriend almost any child she comes across, which I think is a really valuable trait that perhaps comes easier to only children than it does to siblings. We we named our daughter Lyra after that Lyra, although we did in the end go ahead and have another kid. So I guess we did not learn all the lessons of Lyra Balakwa. Thank but you thank for answering you. the question about how you uh, that you named Lyra after Lyra because we've gotten a lot of listeners. Oh yes, yes, that's who that. she's named after. Yeah. We thought it would be a great idea before we had kids to name our child after a um, a disrespectful brat who does not <laughs> listen to authority. Ha <laughs> ha! The joke's on us. <laughs> thank you, Elise, uh, for writing in. That's a great question. Um, and once again, if you have a question you want to ask us or you have a comment on this, please write us at momanddad at slate.com. That's M O M A N D D A D at slate.com. Um, we love hearing from you uh, with questions, comments, uh, reprimands to Allison for being rude to teachers, whatever. Write us whatever you want. Um, all right. So on to recommendations. Allison. 
Do you have one? I do. That I just thought of, right? Because I forgot to come up with a recommendation. But this is real. It's legitimate. Okay, this is not going to be very helpful to all, like, all of our listeners that don't live in New York City, which is almost everyone. But, you know, you can apply it to your own lives. Uh, the I, Prospect Park in Brooklyn um, built a fabulous new ice skating complex, which now in the summer has been turned into an outdoor roller skating rink. And we went over spring break, and it was really fun. And ice skating, I will say, like, you know, it was fun, but I had done, I had ice skated as a grown-up for some reason. Like, ice skating as, adult, as an adult is something you do. But I had not roller skated probably since seventh grade. There was something a little strange about roller skating outside because you feel like you should be roller skating when it's, like, dark with flashing lights and really bad music. Uh, but it was it was super fun. And actually, like, also seeing my husband and the friends we were with, their husband skating, it kind of was like, it made me a little, like, crush on the on my husband because I remember being at the roller skating rink and wishing I had a, a boy to skate with. Anyway, too roll- bad you have no energy for a conversation or sex, Allison. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, right, that's, yeah. Uh, roller skate with your family. That's my recommendation. That's a great recommendation. Uh, we have not taken our kids roller skating, but we totally will now because that sounds super fun. I hope, though, that we can find a really grimy, disgusting roller rink that still plays terrible music. Like, yeah, it was very Brooklyn. To... It was, like, outside yeah. roller skating in the park, and then there was a cafe there with, like, you know, sort of gourmet bratwurst. And, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't the roller skating of my youth. Yeah. Uh, my recommendation is uh, an all-ages comic series called Cartosia. Um, it is, it's very cool. It is a subscription series that you sign up for online, and uh, they send your kids packets full of, like, goodies. And um, it, it's, uh, it was created by a group of nine indie cartoonists. Um, many of them are graduates of the Center for Cartoon Studies in Vermont. There are uh, people who um, do other comic series for adults, but they all banded together to create this project. And you get a subscription. It's a 10-issue subscription for $62. And every couple of months, a new issue shows up t- addressed to your kid in, a, you know, in an envelope, which for every kid I know of, just getting any mail at all is thrilling. But you open up these packages, and it's totally great because each issue has a whole bunch of stories set in this imaginary world of Cartosia. And in the first, very first issue, there's a map of this world. And each issue, each of these nine cartoonists is assigned a different section of the map to tell the continuing story of. So they are adopting each other's characters and continuing their stories from issue to issue. Um the art is really good. The storytelling is really fun. They get like fancy schmancy guest cartoonists to do guest cartoons in some of these. So they've gotten James Kolchaka and Kevin Cannon and a bunch of really other good cartoonists to add to these. And they also come with these like cool little mini comic bonuses like fables and stories and a bestiary from the land of Cartosia. So if you have a kid who's like really into imaginary worlds or fantasy stories or like a kid who's always drawing maps um, – they will totally be into the series. I really recommend it. You can find it at cartosia.com, C-A-R-T-O-Z-I-A.com. And it's fun and totally affordable and worth subscribing to. That sounds really awesome. That's a great recommendation. Okay, that's our show. Please email us at momanddad@slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. As you saw this week, we might turn one of your emails into a topic. M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at Slate.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and please call us and have your kids call us with questions. 424-255-7833. 424-255-RUDE. Thanks to Chris Wade for producing this podcast. 
And also to Andy Bowers, executive producer of All Slate Podcast. Thanks to Monica Ang for coming on. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Allison. And thank you all for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.